This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another one of those crazy road trips through the American South with our crack gonzo producer, Jesse Edwards. Take it away, Jesse. We are about to hit the open road from Oxford, Mississippi, down to the shimmering white sands of Florida's Emerald Coast in the Gulf of Mexico. There are four major industries in the Gulf, fishing, shipping, tourism, and, of course, oil. These four industries account for roughly $234 billion every year. Oil and gas generates $124 billion, or over half the total amount brought in by the four major industries. However, tourism comes in at a close second with an estimated $100 billion every year. And that's what we're doing. Touristing. Well, my wife and kids are tourists. I'm on assignment to document the adventure and to find some interesting voices along the way. But first, it's time to hit the open road. Kids are just happy they get to sit at the beach all weekend. We're on the road by 8 a.m. heading southeast out of Oxford on Highway 6 through the rolling hills and farmland as far as my hungover eyes can see. First stop, the hometown of Elvis Presley, Tupelo. Not only can you visit the small two-room house that Elvis was born in, the actual building where the Presley family attended church services has been moved to the complex where they recreate an old-timey church service for those who might not already be familiar with that experience in real life. This is a must-see place for anyone interested in American history. Well, I quit my job down at the car wash. I left my mama a goodbye note. By sundown, I left Kingston with my guitar under my coat. I hitchhiked all the way down to Memphis, got a room at the YMCA. For the next three weeks, I went a-hunting them nightclubs, looking for a place to play. Well, I thought my picking would set them on fire, but nobody wanted to hire a guitar man. But there's another neat little piece of Elvis Presley history in Tupelo at the old Tupelo hardware store. We're famous for a lot of things, and one of them is selling Elvis Presley his very first guitar. Elvis came in our store in 1945. Elvis was 10 years old, came in with his mother Gladys, and they came in to buy Elvis a bicycle. When they came in the store, they came in through that front door. Elvis stopped in front of the counter because Elvis spotted a 22 rifle hanging on that wall where that poster is up at the top. And Elvis decided that he wanted the rifle instead of the bicycle. Well, his mother said, no, absolutely not, no, you're, you're not going to have the rifle. So little Elvis kind of got upset and started pouting and crying a little bit. Well, there was a man standing back here where I am right now, and his name was Forrest Bobo. Mr. Bobo was a longtime employee of Tupelo Hardware, and Mr. Bobo also was a personal friend of the Presley family. So Mr. Bobo was trying to think of something to calm, calm Elvis down. Well, there just happened to be a guitar on the top shelf but Mr. Bobo opened the door, he reached in, and he pulled the guitar out of this showcase, the same showcase, same door, same floor, same showcase. So he pulled the guitar out, he handed it to Elvis, who was standing right in front of the, the, the counter, and he told Elvis to try the guitar. And so Elvis had never had a guitar in his hands ever, and so he reluctantly took the guitar and played with it. Now leaving Tupelo, crossing the state line into Alabama on our trek to the emerald coast of Florida, a never-ending freeway sits before us through the trees like a sea of green parted by Moses himself. God, how much did I drink last night?
made our next stop in Birmingham. Now, we could visit the Civil Rights Museum. God knows there's enough history in this town to fill an entire broadcast several times over. But today, I want to stop by the Birmingham Black Radio Museum. You see, black radio stations were crucial to the success of the Civil Rights Movement in Birmingham. Announcers such as Paul Tall, Paul White, and Shelley the Playboy Stewart played important roles both on and off the air in support of marches, boycotts, and other forms of direct action. Black radio has a story that needs to be told. That's Bob Friedman, project director at the Birmingham Black Radio Museum. As I did uh, my research, uh, older uh, announcers that were no longer on the air were coming to me with their scrapbooks, which uh, helped me understand that there were earlier stations other than the ones that were currently at Birmingham in Birmingham at the time, namely WEDR and WBCO and Win Radio in its early stages, and uh, Bull, uh, Bull Radio, WBUL. Uh, these were stations that had come and gone, that uh, the frequencies were taken over by other stations, staffs had moved around, and, uh, and people became known for a particular kind of personality, and that was the, the, the concept at the time, it was personality radio. So your announcers could be stars as, as they developed and, and built a following, particularly in, in AM. It's a noble effort to preserve this part of American broadcasting history. As a radio geek myself, I think this is pretty cool. And we're about to talk with Shelley, the Playboy Stewart, who spun records every day at the radio station WENN. My broadcast was just across the street from the park. I broadcast out of that window. I could see everything. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Bless my heart. Bless my soul. I didn't think I'd make it to 22 years old. There must be someone up above. Say, come on, Brittany. You got to come on up. You got to hold.
This is Our American Stories, and Americans love a road trip, and we're going to be sending Jesse over the coming years around the whole country, our gonzo field producer and executive producer. Jesse likes nothing more than hitting the road. He did it with his family, and we last heard from Jesse in the city of Birmingham. We're at the Birmingham Black Radio Museum in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, Shelly the Playboy Stewart spun hits every day at the radio station WENN. He told us about how he would pass on coded messages during his broadcasts about where and when to gather for demonstrations. Each day at 3 o'clock, when the kids would get out of school at Phillips High School, was in Walking area, and the kids would get out of school, they would walk down to the radio stations, and they happened to be white kids, and they would uh, see me, uh, and I would sign autographs for them. Uh, I had a relationship with these kids, uh, and afterwards, and my name had become very, very popular. There were mass meetings each Monday night at various churches throughout the county, uh, and uh, I just happened to be one of those personalities that uh, supported uh, the announcing of the movements and exactly what church they would be. There were uh, other Negro broadcasters, stations in town, where the white ownership and the managers threatened and told the uh, air personnel who was Negro, uh, don't make announcements on the movement meeting. But there was a difference. Uh, I had no fear. And the managers and owners knew exactly what I was. The managers knew I would not uh, uh, accept the, the dare. I didn't, didn't bother me. Not only that, my ratings were huge and uh, they were making money. <laughs> so the white owners, well, we can't, we're not going to touch that. The white manager, I'm not going to touch that. I love this guy. It warms my heart to know that old timers like him are out there alive and kicking. He's an old-school broadcasting activist. His bosses knew it. They didn't like it. But they had no choice but to let him do it because he got the good ratings. Good ratings mean big money. Capitalism saves the day again. During the 50s and 60s, Birmingham was about to explode. It was the epicenter of the civil rights movement, a focus of local, national, and international attention. Amid political and social upheaval, Stewart was the melodic, calming voice that came over the airwaves. The voice of reason amid chaos. My broadcast was just across the street from the park. My record store was located 1607 Fifth Avenue North, which is just across the street from Kelly Ingram Park. I broadcast out of that window. I could see everything from the church to the park and everything going on. So the thing was to get the word in the communities that, in fact, we wanted them to come out. And so how are we going to do it? So, well, Tall Paul, Shelly the Playboy, uh, they're on the air from 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock. So uh, here's what will happen. We'd do a certain record, and that record was quietly, you know, circulated in each community. If you would hear Joe Turner, Shake, Rattle, and Roll, uh, the titles, Get Out of That Bed and Wash Your Face and Hands, you know, 
get in that kitchen and make noise with the pots and pans. So, no so strange record because it was not popular in that day. So, it was different from the record they heard. I could listen to this old guy talk all day long. No wonder he got such good ratings. But we're on the road to Florida beaches. Family in tow. Time to get back on the freeway to head south. From Tupelo to Birmingham, we continue our trek through Alabama to our next stop in Montgomery, the state capital. This is Hank Williams' territory. Regarded as one of the most significant and influential American singers and songwriters of the 20th century, Williams recorded 35 singles that reached the top 10, including 11 that ranked number one. We have the man himself, Hank Williams. Hank, how are you? All fine, Bob. It's awful good to see you again, fellas. Hank, it's mighty good to see you. Hey, world be nice to you, I suppose. Oh, just fine as can be. He moved to Montgomery, where he began his music career in 1937, when producers at the local radio station WSFA hired him to perform and host a 15-minute program. Nestled in downtown historic Montgomery, the Hank Williams Museum is one of the top tourist attractions. Beth Petty is the curator. My father, Cecil Jackson, was a big fan at the age of eight years old, 1944. He used to listen to Hank Williams on the radio station here in Montgomery. And he met him personally one afternoon, and Hank bought him a Coca-Cola. And that was such a big treat for that little kid, and here we are. So Hank Williams was scheduled to perform in Charleston, West Virginia, but had to cancel due to a storm. He then hired college student Charles Carr to drive him to his next appearance, a concert on New Year's Day, 1953, at the Palace Theater in Canton, Ohio. In Knoxville, Tennessee, the two stopped at the Andrew Jackson Hotel. Carr requested a doctor for Williams, who was feeling sick from the drugs and alcohol he consumed on the way from Montgomery. A doctor then injected Williams with two shots of vitamin B12 that contained morphine. Carr talked to Williams for the last time when they stopped at a restaurant in Bristol, Virginia. He kept driving until he reached a gas station in Oak Hill, West Virginia, where Williams was discovered unresponsive in the backseat of the baby blue Cadillac convertible that is the centerpiece of the Hank Williams Museum here in Montgomery. Here again is curator Beth Petty. In December of 52, he recorded a song, I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive. And it was his eighth number one hit. And it was at the top of the charts, number one for eight weeks. And it was during his death. The day he died, it was number one on the charts. Now you're looking at a man that's getting kind of mad. I had a lot to look, but it's all been bad. No matter how struggle and strive, I'll never get out of this world alive. So a bit of an ominous tone to accent our Florida beach trip is fine. As long as I can keep the truck on the road. I really have nothing to worry about other than sharks, large crowds, bad weather. It's important to stay on the sunny side. Anyways, for our next stop, I'm meeting up with an old friend of mine who played ball for the New York Yankees for a brief stint back in the day. His name is Lou Vickery. We agreed to meet in a McDonald's in Spanish Fort, Alabama, a suburb of Mobile, at the intersection of Malvis Parkway and Interstate 10. You must be Lou Vickery. I am. How are you, sir? Hey, you doing? Good. 
Nice to see you, finally. Good to see you. So Lou was my daily sports guy on a morning news show I used to produce a few years back. Every day, without fail, he would call into the studios at 4 in the morning with his coverage of the games of the day before. He's in his mid-70s. He can chew up and spit out just about anybody half his age on the tennis courts. Hell, he's in better shape than I am. And get this, his mom is still alive and well. We're blessed by the fact that she's still with us. Uh, I, she'll be 94 in two weeks. And uh, still in good health. She works in her yard. Uh, she is known around uh, our neck of the woods as the Rose Lady. Uh, at one time, she had almost 200 rose bushes. She doesn't have quite that many now. But she has a, a beautiful array, and you you will... You know, you're, you're going to see probably 15-plus different colors, mixtures of roses. And uh, they just, uh, people come and drive out and, and turn around, well, take a look at the roses, turn around and drive away and leave. It's just quite a common sight at this time of the year at you home. You lived there so. for a long time? Same yes. house? Yeah, same house. So is that the one you grew up in? Moved, moved there when I was uh, eight years of age. Eight years old. In fact, on my eighth birthday. Where were you born? A little town, well, I actually was born out in the country. Uh, I was delivered at a home uh, before, not, that wasn't a hospital. It was back in the war years, 41. And uh, I was delivered at home in a little town called McCullough, Alabama. And um, we moved to um, we moved to the big city of all of 7,000 people at Moore. And that's where I actually grew up. And uh, that's where my mom still is. And you're listening to my old friend Lou Vickery tell us his life story. When we come back, more stories of his time as a professional ball player. He'll share with us his latest book. We'll talk about bucket lists, and we'll find out what happened to his father. When we come back, I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is our road trip to Florida. American stories, and we continue on Jesse's road trip across the American South from Oxford, Mississippi, to the Emerald Coast and the beaches of Destin. And we left off with Jesse in and around Mobile, talking to an old friend. From Tupelo, Mississippi, down to Birmingham and through Montgomery, right now we're just outside of Mobile, Alabama, talking to my good friend Lou Vickery about life. We'll get to those Florida beaches eventually. But first, I wanted to hear more from Lou. Done real good with baseball. Uh, I played on two national championship Babe Ruth teams out of Pensacola, Florida. Uh, we won the World Series in 1957 playing in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, the year before, we got beat in Portland, Oregon, lost to Trenton, New Jersey, and Al Downing, who went on to Yankee fame. 
you know, Al's noted for the home run he gave up to Hank Aaron to break uh, Babe Ruth's record. So that gave me a lot of exposure to scouts. And so after my senior year um, was offered, in those days it wasn't a draft. You, you, you pretty much a bid more. Well, my dad was such a big St. Louis Cardinal fan, and the Cardinals uh, offered some pretty decent money to sign a contract. We actually went to St. Louis and signed a contract at uh, Stan Musial's restaurant. It was called Big Inns and Stan's, uh, and that was in um, June of uh, 1959. We went to St. Louis. My dad, uh, we, we took a train up, and uh, my dad wasn't real keen on flying, but we left St. Louis. On this flight, it was to stop in Jackson, Mississippi, and then uh, the destination was Montgomery, Alabama. And that's where the contest was going to take place. So got um, my dad uh, was sitting, he and I were sitting side by side. And the plane in those days, ODC-3s, would have a tendency to drop. You know, they hit an air pocket, and they could drop a 1,000 feet. Well, my goodness, that plane started dropping. My dad just, I could, he was white knuckles. He gripped that thing. But he looked across the aisle, and there's a priest over there reading his Bible. So he was convinced, you know, we was going. And he said, son, you know, take care. I hope everything goes well. <laughs> it was so, you know, it, it really it wasn't funny, but it was funny, you know. But we we landed in Jackson. He got off the plane. No idea about it because his bags went on with me. He didn't get his bags or anything. He just got off the plane. And I don't know how he got home, but he got home. And I went on to Montgomery. We won that won the singing contest, but I couldn't go any further because I'd signed a contract with the Cardinals. After signing his contract with the Cardinals farm team, he would bounce around the country before he landed that gig with the New York Yankees. I started in Virginia, and after two weeks, went to Billings, Montana. Uh, finished out the year there. Came back the next season, and was the minor league pitcher of the month in the month of September. Won six games in one month, and. Um, then the next year, I jump all the way from C-ball to double-A ball. I go to Tulsa double-A team and have a real good year. Next year, I go I'm promoted to Atlanta, which was a triple-A team at that time for the Cardinals. And we had guys like Tim McCarver and Johnny Lewis and Mike Shannon. There were Jerry Buchek, Bill Jim Beach, a lot of guys that went on and played in the big leagues. And I started off real good, but then I had a little arm problem, so... For the rest of that year, the next year, and then, then I finally got straightened out again in 64 and had the best year. I led the minor leagues in earned run average that year with a 1.28. But my options were up with the Cardinals, so they traded me to the Yankees. So I went to the Yankees. As I like to tell everybody, I got over there and really messed that team up. They, the Yankees had won the pennant the year before and played the Cardinals in the World Series. Well, they went from first place to seventh place, and uh, that was the latter part of the career for Mantle, and uh, Maris didn't have a very good year, and there were several guys on that team that had uh, kind of just gotten old, you know what I mean? It just uh, really, and so the Yankees went from first place to seventh place. But um, This wasn't the farm team, this was the Yankee yeah, Yankees. Yeah, this was the Yankee Yankees, yeah. How old were you when, when you found that out? Well, let's well, you see. were traded to the Yankees. Was that a, an exciting piece well, of news? 23, uh, 23. 23 years of age, yeah. Was that, was that exciting at the time? or was? Well, it... Yes, it was. I have to share. My dad, what do you think about the name Lou? Was there a pretty good Yankee player named Lou? Uh, Lou Gehrig? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so my, that's how big a fan my dad was of the Yankees. And I couldn't stand them. 
<laughs> so, you know, he always talking about the Yankees this, Yankees that. And they're going to now get traded to the Yankees, right? Well, hey, I always learned that you don't bite the hand that's got your paycheck in it. <laughs> so I became a big Yankee fan then. <laughs> and uh, I went to spring training with the Yankees. But still, that, that little arm uh, problem kind of cropped up, went on the disabled list, came back, and never was the uh, same pitcher. Those arm problems were enough to end his baseball career. But our man Lou Vickery is like old Hickory. Not the kind of guy who'll let it get him down for too long. You know, something I started uh, doing uh, while I was playing ball, because you have a lot of idle time, is I started writing. And uh, I started uh, making notes. And even though uh, I was uh, in my late 30s before I had my first book published, but uh, I started making notes at that point in time. And... uh, after I left, uh, after I left baseball, I worked for. I went back to New York. Work. Uh, I, I, I actually came back, got an education, finished my college degree because I promised my mother when I signed a contract out of high school. My, the, the first thing my mom says, "You gonna get a college education?" I just said, "Yes, ma'am." She says, "You're right. You are." So, and I got a college education, um, and I went to work for Merrill. Went to New York, back to New York, worked for Merrill Lynch. Went to Dallas, worked for them a while, but that business just was not my cup of tea. I'd sit behind a desk with two phones in years, uh, just didn't jive, you know. So I got involved in the training business, and uh, and then for 29 years, that's what I did. I was involved in training, uh, speaking. I did a lot of motivational speaking and, and started writing books, most of them along the motivational line, inspirational line. In his latest book, A Touch of Grey, Lou Vickery tells a familiar tale of two young boys, each of another race, who are growing up together in the segregated South. This book is a story of these two kids and the things they did together uh, between the ages of 9 and 13. And they all stories are true. I just, uh, I could tell about it. You know, you have to write stuff as a, uh, from a legal standpoint, you know, you might make a mistake, so the, the attorney's always asked to write it as a novel. And so it is, but it is a, a, a very explicit uh, depiction of what life was like growing up in uh, the Deep South in those, those, those years. Any chance you could read a, a portion of it for us? I'll, uh, I'll start off a bit, because I think, I uh, hope I can read this. I think it, uh, I probably can. It's, um, ever watch a fire in the last rows? Uh, mostly ashes, a few embers glow, first faintly, then more faintly, until finally the embers appear dead. But what happens when you pick up a poke and stoke the embers? The glow returns and gets brighter. Streaks of flames rise up. The blaze stirs and crackles and leaps back to life. Our memories work the same way. Sometimes the flames that carry some of our greatest memories wane, and die because we failed to pick up the poke and stoke the memory embers. As human beings, our memories seldom carry us back to the day, the week, or even the year, or sometimes even the event or situation that occurred. What we tend to recall are precious moments. It is no secret that the older we get, the more we come to realize that the years have a way of softening the edges of those moments that we recall. 
Time and circumstances tend to erode our memories of the way things actually happen, but that's not necessarily the case with the moments I want to share with you in our time together. Just two good old boys sitting in my pickup truck outside of McDonald's in Mobile, Alabama, talking about life. This is Our American Stories. We'll be right back. For the final chapter of Jesse's epic road trip through the American South. Take it away, Jesse. Now, my friend Lou Vickery here wants to tell me a couple stories about some miracles he's witnessed over the years. But first, he let me know that he was also at one point a crooner in the church choir. I will never be the same again. I've closed the door. So, is that enough? Well, give me a I can't, more. I can't, I can't, I don't know if I can think of <laughs> anymore. You, you, yeah, you did, you put me on the spot without the music in front of me. I tell you what, here's a, That's here's, right. I'm a, uh, this is a little bit, this is a Christmas song I wrote. Let me oh, yeah. share a little bit of yes, it. Yes, please do. Uh, let me, let me get, the, let me get the, the tune right here. Let's see. God send you a blessed Christmas. His message be on your mind. His, oh goodness gracious, isn't that terrible, huh? <laughs> I can always patch it together if anybody. Yeah, well, you can patch it together. I tell you what, <laughs> you may have to. And I am. I'm. Uh, it's terrible. I'm not recalling like I should. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but this, uh, I, I do. i and uh, like I said, our whole family. We had a, I want to share a story about a, one of my sisters, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a, a brother and four sisters, all younger. I'm the oldest. Uh, I had a sister that uh, 12 years, it'd be 12 years this October. It was at a football game at Auburn. And um, she, some way, the, thought the car was in gear, the brake was down, it was on a slope. And uh, she walked around behind the vehicle, and it, it just broke out of gear. Knocked her down and ran over an SUV. And, uh, in fact, uh, if you look over your right shoulder, that old beat-up heap over here, that's, that's, the, that's the vehicle that ran over her. And I have, uh, we keep that up on the farm, kind of as a remembrance of, uh, of that time. But she... Both the front, the rear, and the front axles ran over her body. She, uh, because of the fact it was a game day, and I don't know what you know about, yeah, you know, uh, game days at Auburn or Oregon or wherever you go, they're going to be something. A lot of folks coming into the stadium couldn't get an ambulance in because of the traffic, so they took the ambulance out of the stadium and came out and tra- to transport, and it took them about 30 minutes. Now she laid on the ground, 
um, you know, obviously both young lungs collapsed. To this day, don't know, you know, how she survived, but she did. And you wouldn't know that she had uh, she had gone through that. We call her the miracle lady. And uh, you're talking about a blessing and a miracle. It was it just. Do you believe in miracles? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. That was one of them. That was one of them. Yeah. We had, and I had a nephew that had an accident on a issue. I mean, not a, a ATV turned over, hit on his head, no helmet. Was in a coma for 32 days. Doctors said didn't think he'd ever wake up. First, didn't think he'd wake up, and if he did, he wouldn't be. You know, it just wouldn't be sound of mind and. And uh, he just woke up one morning and says, Mom, I'm, I'm thirsty. Hmm. Now, he didn't get quite back to work, but he's, he has a, he can work a, a regular job, which he does. He, he came back, and uh, that was in high school, came back and played a year of high school baseball on a state championship team. Wow. Um, so, yes, I do. I believe in miracles. By this time in our interview, I realized that Lou had mentioned his mother, but not his father. Well, my dad, uh, my dad was called Buddy, so that probably tells you the, right there. He was everybody's buddy. Um, never seemed, you know, he could make uh, make you laugh about almost anything, right? I mean, there were times when tragedies would strike at, uh, and it, he didn't do that, but it's a general rule. Uh, he and he, he he was an automobile salesman and a good one. Uh, he he stayed in that business, uh, um, I guess, almost 40 years. Then uh, he retired the fall of 1979. Retired, and two months later found out he had cancer. And uh, he he stayed with us. Uh, we, you know, did the best he could. And uh, he died in June of 1980 at a, at a ripe young age of 62. So... Uh, but uh, most of his life, he he played pro baseball, and uh, after the service years were over with, you know, the service messed up a lot of careers because that was about the time that they were, you know, the guys were coming along, and uh, we were talking about Ted Williams. You know, very few people. Well, I, well, I I was in a discussion uh, with some guys on a radio show about um, hitters, and I told them I thought Ted Williams was the greatest hitter ever. And one of the guys said, well, you know, he didn't get as many hits as so-and-so-and-so-and-so. I said, yeah, but you you don't understand that he spent four years in the military in the prime of his career. Now, what if he'd add those probably 800 hits that he would add it to his total? Then it's a whole different ballgame, you see. So, But as far as the ability to swing a bat and, and do things, uh, it was, uh, I think, really great. But my dad was uh, a big baseball fan. Uh, he loved baseball. He actually played semi-pro ball. That's kind of where I cut my teeth was uh, uh, being the bat boy. You know, for his semi, he was the manager of the semi-pro teams. And let me tell you something. They had guys in the semi-pro teams in those days that were about as good as some of the guys I saw in the pros. And But they just didn't have an opportunity uh, to, to go play. So many, you know, just about every town, Jesse, had a, a, a meal team, so to speak. You know, had a team that uh, would spend some time uh, – uh, every Sunday afternoon, you were going to have a ball game somewhere. They'd have one during the week and one on the weekend. What is it about baseball that you love so much? Can you can you illustrate that with words, or is it? Yeah, I think uh, baseball, you understand baseball is a very simple game, but yet it's a very complex game. 
the simplicity of it is uh, run, see Dick run, see see Bob throw, see Mary, you know, bat, that type of thing. And, and that's the simplicity of it. That's what most baseball fans watch. I mean, they watch the action. You know, I, I want to digress a moment because I want to mention this relative to it while it's on my mind. Now, when you get my age, you'll understand, okay? You well, better grab it while you can. I understand right? it now. And so, <laughs> so, so, but baseball, the reason baseball stands out is baseball is an individual game. It's a team game, but it's played by individuals. It's not like football and basketball. You don't see the you know the screening and all. In baseball, you don't have that. You've got you know the ball's hit to the shortstop. He either fills it, boots it. But so individual statistics have a great deal more significance in baseball than they do any other sport. And that's the reason I think bubble gum cards and those kind of things historically have always been made a difference. You know, about the individual. Yeah, because of the individual part. But still, a team sport. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting. So it is a team sport played by individuals. That's the way it's. And now, there's another thing you have to to understand about baseball. Baseball is uh, it's the only game played where the hands and the ball's in the hand of the defense most of the time. And uh, think about it. And it's the only place too where you you start and you finish at the same place, the home plate. This guy knows how to take baseball analogies and turn them into life lessons. It should be obvious at this point that my friend Lou Vickery likes telling stories. He's also got some jokes, too. Sundays were kind of special. We'd go into town, and we'd eat at a restaurant, right? And uh, if, that's always the way we knew things were good. You know, we had good crops. You know, you, you know it by the fact that uh, the family would go eat at a restaurant, so... We went to this restaurant to, to have uh, lunch, and after um, uh, it was over with, we, we had dessert. And my mother uh, ordered some pie a la mode. And um, there was this nice uh, elderly man and his wife uh, sitting at uh, the table next to us. And after he finished his meal, uh, the waitress asked him, Mr. Harvey, would you like to have some dessert? And yes, ma'am, I'll have the same thing Miss Vickery had. I'd like some pie in the commode. So, <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, now, you know, that happened, you know, that happened, what, 76, 65 years ago? And yet, I, you know, I, I, I kept remembering that. One last question for our old friend Lou Vickery here. What's on your bucket list? I want to take the Alaskan cruise. <laughs> yeah, I do. I want it. In fact, we th- thought about doing it this year, but uh, I'm going to wait. And uh, the uh, but uh, the Alaskan cruise is I you know I some of the top tennis tournaments, the World Series, the Super Bowl, all those things I've been able to to do at least one time, and uh, um, a Final Four. You know, I I just don't. Uh, uh, but I would love to just take a, a take a cruise to Alaska because it's so beautiful. Is there anything you think we left out? No, I tell you what, I appreciate this. I, you know, recalling things, it's uh, it's not all bad, is it? Huh? No. <laughs> I am going. I am going. My my sons have me going back and getting together all the stuff that I want to keep and. Jesse, I got six boxes of it, so <laughs> but uh, we'll we'll will it down. Life is life is good. We just got to understand that uh, and live it to the best of our ability. So with that, I say thank you. And that's my good friend Lou Vickery. 
Thanks for taking the time with us, sir. You can go to louvickrybooks.com to find out more. So we've gone from Tupelo, Mississippi to Birmingham, Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama, and we're sitting outside of Mobile, Alabama, and we were supposed to be at the coast by now. But we had a few fun detours from the Tupelo Hardware Store to the Black Radio Museum in Birmingham to the Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, and we just had this lovely chat with my friend Lou Vickery. Join us next week as we travel all the way from Pensacola to Daytona Beach, Florida. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. our American stories. We love the culture. We love film and television and music. And one of our favorite TV shows, along with Shark Tank, is Judge Judy. You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheindlin. The people are real. The cases are real. The rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. And this case, well, we love taking the best ones of the week because you have jobs and you're not home more than likely when this airs. But this one involved, well, a deadbeat dead credit card. All parties in the matter of Stang versus Dejana. Step forward, please. Bonnie Stang is suing her ex-boyfriend, Thomas Dejana, for credit card charges in excess of $11,000. Ouch. Oh, man, here's Judge Judy unpacking the case. Ms. Stang, it is your claim that Mr. DeJana owes you some money. Yes. Owes you some money because he used your credit card. Yes. You were given him permission to use your credit card with the understanding that he was going to take care of the bills from the credit card and use it only for emergencies. Mr. DeJana racked up thousands of dollars of expenses on the credit card, and you want that money back. Yes, Your Honor. In addition, claim he owes you some money for rent because he rented a condo of yours. All of that is well in excess of this court's limit of $5,000. So we'll get into the rent if only if we have to. Let's deal with the credit card. Okay? Okay. Boy, poor Mr. DeJana, it's coming. But what's his side of the story? Where and when did you meet Miss Stang? I met Miss Stang on an internet Stang? dating site. So you were looking for a date? I was looking for some companionship, yes, ma'am. How old are you? 38. Ever been married? Yes, I have. How many times? Once. Do you have children? Yes, I do, Your Honor. How many? One. How old? She's a nine-year-old daughter. And in what state does she live? New York. And where do you live? On San Diego. You live very far away from your child. Yes, I do. How come? Um, during... Um is not an answer. Excuse me? Um is not an answer. <laughs> my my uh, apologies, Your Honor. How often do you see your daughter? Uh, three or four times a year. You pay child support, Mr. Chichana? Yes, I do. How much? Uh, $500 a month. Boy, she doesn't like him already. Um is not an answer. And it's not. Judge Judy moves in on the story behind the story of those credit card expenses. Now, Mr. DeJana, 
When did Miss Stang give you a credit card? <laughs> Just before I went to New York for Christmas. And what did you tell her when she gave you the credit card? I told her thank you very much for helping me out in this time of my need. Why were you in need, sir? I went on disability October 26th. What is the nature of your disability? I had, I had a torn up shoulder. From what? Playing baseball. What kind of work were you doing? I'm an industrial electrician. Okay. Okay, okay. She presses him on this so-called disability. Now, I want you to tell me, Mr. Jijana, because it was something that was very interesting to me. You couldn't work because of a torn shoulder? I have no mobility above 180 degrees. Aren't there other jobs that you could find, sir, that would permit you to work and not lift your arms up all the way up here? Uh, I'm an industrial electrician, and that entails a lot of heavy lifting above my head, screwing in pipes, No, 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 listen wires. to what I said, listen to what I said, uh, Mr. I'm a trained electrician, that's what when, I do. Listen to what I said to you, sir. When you have a nine-year-old child, yes. you pick up cans. You don't have to lift anything above your head in order to pay your child oh, support. I understand that. I'm glad you understand that. I just want you to understand that I know where we're coming from. But also, now, what were you doing skiing in Utah? <laughs> and this is why this is still the best-rated television show during the day and why Judge Judy is the highest-paid lady and man in all of television. And why were you skiing in Utah? <laughs> well, where did that come from? Okay, so he was skiing in Utah. Let's follow Judge Judy down this slope. I wasn't skiing, ma'am. I drove my friends there in my truck. And along you with drove here, your friends in your truck yes, to Utah. So? The plan all along was for me to drive there with several of the individuals going on the trip and to haul all of the ski equipment and other snow equipment in my trailer yeah. so that people didn't have to deal with it. Get a airport. job driving a cab <laughs> if you could drive cross-country for a ski vacation, sir, and haul all their skis. Get behind the wheel of a cab and drive a taxi. Drive a limousine service. That's not my choice drive of occupation. Oh, well. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. I don't you want to be, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm speaking. You're not. You want to be a bum on your own time, that's fine. You have a nine-year-old child. Forget her. You have a nine-year-old child. I wouldn't give you one iota of relief from your back child support. Not one. And I know the judges in New York City, sir. That's my hometown. And they're not going to do it either. They're not going to give you one break, especially after I send them this tape. You bet. And by the way, this is what really ticks Americans off. Guys like this, really, really freeloaders like this, just stealing our money. Because he doesn't want to do a certain kind of job, but the one kind of job that he can no longer do. Ridiculous. Judge Judy now turns to that girlfriend. Because, boy... Something tells me he's gonna, she's going to come down on her, too, for giving this bum her credit card. Now, how much does he owe you on the credit card? $11,000. Can I see some of the purchases that he made, please? Which happened over six weeks, most of which were cash withdrawals. Listen, how old are you? Too old for this, 44 years old. Let me tell you something. Yes, ma'am. I could tell that he was a bum in five minutes. How does it take you six weeks to figure out that this guy hasn't been able to get his life straight? I have faith in mankind, which has now been no, destroyed. No, you cannot have faith in mankind. You were, your head wasn't ruling you. Thank you. You're right, Your Honor. You're absolutely right. He played on my I mean, I don't even see what his attraction is. He doesn't have any. Different I, if you, you know, Your Honor, he... Look like Tom Cruise. Jeez. <laughs> Judge him for the plaintiff in the amount of $5,000. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. You may step out. I agree. Get him off this air.
And by the way, we know guys like this. One of the things we're going to do on this show starting in the fall is we're going to start to look into some of these disability scams because guys like this have no right to take money from us. He could be a telephone operator. He could drive a cab. There is a hundred other jobs he can do. I'm trained to be an electrician. That's all I can do. What a load of nonsense. What a load of nonsense. Get another job. Now, what were you doing skiing in Utah? Well said, Judge Judy. And he never really gave... I mean, he's making it seem like he drove all those people out there and didn't ski himself. I say you go on his Facebook page, something tells me there'll be pictures of him sliding down a slope in Utah. What a jerk. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is why we love Judge Judy. And we bring it to you because sometimes you can't make it. More after these messages. It's sense. What you need to set it. I'm a really smart lady. Sometimes I write a little song. So you don't forget it. Sometimes I write a little song. To remember the lyrics. I go And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Marriage on the Mind series with our marriage coach, Deb Olniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and also serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, you can write to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and she'll make sure to get back to you within 24 hours. And today's Marriage on the Mind story is from Emily Harden, who shared her marriage story in the New York Times recently. Her piece was titled, I Planned My Wedding in Five Days, You Could Too. And Emily graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. It was the day before my wedding, and I literally did not have a dress. In 24 hours, all my friends and family would be gathering in the Empire Ballroom. And at this point, my something borrowed was an entire church outfit from my best friend's closet. Was I concerned? Not really, actually. I decided to throw a Hail Mary at my mom and asked if she would make a skirt to match a $10 top I had found at the mall. She did, and it was lovely absolutely lovely but my wedding dress was just one of many things I was not concerned about for example five days earlier which was a Thursday which also happened to be New Year's Eve I was on the phone with the woman who had become my banquet coordinator Uh, The conversation took place about an hour after I got officially engaged as Rob and I were hiking in the hills of Sedona in Arizona. The conversation went like this. Her. (coughs) Excuse me, you are getting married in five days and you are just calling me now? Me. Well, I actually think I'm being quite generous. I just got engaged an hour ago, and you are my very first call. I figured I should work out some logistics before texting everyone. And no, I am not pregnant. 
just to make that clear. Her. Well, that is unusual. How many people are you expecting? Me. Um, probably a hundred. Her. One <laughs> hundred people with five days notice? Me. People do it for funerals all the time. If I underestimate, we will have leftovers. If I overestimate, I'll just make my family eat last. Her. I am not sure how to process this. Okay, let's talk about flowers. Me. <laughs> no, thank you. Her. No flowers? Me. The room is beautiful enough. I don't think anyone will notice. It seems really wasteful. Her. Uh, how about tablecloths and napkin colors? Me. Just whatever is cheapest and most convenient. I don't really care. Her. You don't have colors? Me. Well, um, I guess the only suit my fiance has right now is navy. And he has a pink tie. Everything else is in storage, so I guess we'll go with that for my wedding colors. Navy and pink. Her. Is this a joke? My entire luncheon was planned in an hour. Because Rob Reading, my now husband, and I knew each other for four years and had been dating over the past year, we knew we wanted to spend eternity together. In fact, as a side note, we already had met with our bishops for pre-marriage approval, but had not become officially engaged. And because my husband's maritime work and a transfer from London to the Bay Area, along with me working on the Little Sisters of the Poor Supreme Court case, we figured we had two options in the moment after his proposal. We could get married in a week or get married in a year. We eagerly decided it was T minus five days to put my theory to the test. So lots of people ask, why, why five days? Well, long ago, I became convinced that modern weddings were unnecessarily burdensome. My theory was you could plan a beautiful wedding in a week. The second call I made that day in the desert was to my parents, who told me their prayers were answered. And the third call I made that afternoon was to the Salt Lake Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wasn't exactly concerned about getting a slot of the temple because Tuesday mornings isn't exactly prime time for weddings. So at this point, it was still day one of planning, and I already had my ceremony and my reception site secured. Wedding invitations were sent out a few hours later via text message with a collage of selfies saying, would love to have you come if you can make it. No gifts, just love. I then called in favors from best friends to do photos and hair and makeup and I pulled strings to get performers and an MC for the event. So as the last of six children to get married, not to mention the fact that I've had 13 foster siblings, my parents were not complaining. In addition, the small farm town that I grew up in, literally there were more cows than humans, um, the town was rejoicing that the two of us in our 30s and 40s that we were getting married at all. Okay, to be sure, 
I acknowledge that five days notice was inconvenient and there were a few people who couldn't make it. But whether it is five days or five years, it would have been inconvenient and there would have been those who would have missed it. And surprisingly, there were only a handful of close friends who couldn't make it, which is the same rate as any wedding. And some of the best parts, the total planning time, 26 hours, and that includes me shopping for my dress, and the total cost, $4,500. The result, on January 5th, 2016, was the perfect wedding day. People commented that it couldn't have been more lovely if I had an entire year to plan it. And guess what? Not a single person noticed that we didn't have flowers. In fact, I've even polled a lot of the people at my wedding to ask, hey, did you notice? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't notice you didn't have flowers. Side note. So, as my mother Marilyn said, hallelujah. Hallelujah for putting the relationship above the wedding. Hallelujah for not worrying about complicated logistics. And hallelujah for not having enough time to change your mind. Thank you, mother. Well, Rob kept saying to me throughout the five-day process, what do you want me to do? And I kept telling him there wasn't anything for him to do. And here's why. With each social expectation for weddings, I asked myself two questions. One, does this achieve the goal of making people at my wedding feel loved and appreciated for the role they played in my life? Or two, Will it help strengthen my marriage and the promises that we made to each other? If the answer was no, I didn't waste any more time. I now appreciate applying this to other areas of my life. Now that we're married, I ask myself, is where we go to dinner eternally significant? If not, why argue over it? Or do party favors for the barbecue you're giving matter? Probably not. I say, enjoy the path of least resistance. If it truly represents the most important elements of your life and your relationship, then put time and put energy and put creativity into it. But if not, do yourself a favor and skip the stress. You know, and in all this, Rob also saw the beauty in our very short engagement and the microburst planning period. He said, The longer it plays out, the longer the nuisance. It would have just been an obstacle to starting our life, so why wait? So, you know what? I may not have a $200 gravy boat, and I may have worn an 888 Walmart wedding ring that eventually turned my finger green, but our flowerless navy and pink wedding set the perfect precedent for married life. Elegantly simple. And thank you, Emily, for that. And when we come back, we will be joined by Deb Wolniak to talk about weddings, stress, and so much more. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Emily Hardman's story from the New York Times. I plan my wedding in five days. You could, too.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to our Marriage on the Mind segment. And joining us, as always, is Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach. And Deb, what a great story to hear, and what a, what a fresh and wonderful voice. I almost want to have Emily on a couple of times a year and just play this so anyone going through the tumult of a wedding plan uh, can just maybe just ditch it. Uh, talk about uh, your first impressions when you heard this. Well, it is refreshing. That's the key word there, because so many couples get tied up in knots, literally, (laughs) about planning a wedding that is there to, you know, maybe it's been a dream of somebody for a long time, but ultimately when that wedding is done and they're spending an average of 35000 on a wedding now in America. um, Deb, hold on a second, Deb. You said 35000 is the average? Yes, that's the average. It does include our big cities like New York at 78, Chicago at 60, and L.A. at 44. But, you know, the reality is most couples are spending around ten grand. That is the goal. But even then, for some folks, that is a huge stretch. And to have couples that are having 200 guests or so, that is a big responsibility. And let me tell you, when that's done and the honeymoon's over, your reality is going to set in. Um, this is a commitment I made for the rest of my life. And what do I have to show from wedding? Some awesome pictures, some great memories. Absolutely. Those are all things that are important. But what did you do financially that's going to set you ahead or back at the starting line of your marriage? And, and Deb, you know, coming into the marriage, this first crisis point, I actually think the wedding is the first crisis point. And so if you two learn how to negotiate through that crisis point, my wife and I did it fast like this. We did it cheap because we just said we are not incurring debt to go into the future of our life. And as you as we've talked about, Deb, finances is one of the key strains on a marriage. What a crazy way and what a crazy precedent to set for your marriage. How are you going to handle other crisis points? The first house comes up. You want to keep up with the Joneses. So you get a house you can't afford. So on and so forth. So talk about, as a marriage coach, how this is an opportunity for a good coach uh, to come between a couple and have them think about the long view of marriage and these other crisis financial points that come. Because from a car to a house and to vacations, where and how we spend our money on those three things can either lead to financial ruin or to financial health. And we know what happens to marriages that are financially healthy. They have a better shot. Yes. They do, and that you're on the same page for those things. So I'm going to challenge folks that are listening to, hey, yes, have a designer wedding, one that fits your pocketbook, your lifestyle, and your goals. That's an important lesson. But also have a designer marriage. So many people go into the act of getting married that they don't consider how their relationship stage is at and really knowing where the other person is at when you make that, let's face it, business decision for life. You would not go into a partnership with a business without checking out the other person's motives and goals first. And to know where that other person is at and that you're on the same page, why would you go into a lifelong commitment for marriage and not check those things out? I believe there's a lot of people that have a great, great love for each other that don't take the time to do the double checks before they walk down the aisle. And don't you want to know that you know that you know why you're marrying that person? The good, the bad, and the ugly. The things that really help us identify none of us are perfect. But I am willing and ready 
to make that commitment to that individual come hell or high water because this is my person that I'm going to team with for the rest of my life. And I love this person. Let's not forget about that. The second you throw the wedding ring, engagement ring, I'm sorry, on your finger is the second that most couples turn off the relationship building power and go into action mode. I got to get this thing and this and this. And you'll see it with a lot of brides. They just go into the zone sometimes with their their mothers that they just get so involved in the wedding. They forget about the relationship. They come to the day and that bride is on one end of the aisle or the, you know, wherever you're getting married at and the groom's at the other and she's going or he's going, oh my gosh, I hope this works. And if you think you're thinking that right now and you're planning your wedding, you need to stop and make sure you have a coach that can come alongside you and do some of that premarital coaching that is so, so important. I will always say prepare and enrich is one of the number one ways in 30 minutes that you can find out where your strength areas are and where your challenge areas are so you as a couple can go through this lesson plan of six weeks and know where you're at, know exactly how you're going to use the tools on relationship wellness to build your relationship so you can have the relationship everybody else envies because they want the same thing too whether they tell you or not. It's not about the car you drive or the house that you have or 2.5 kids. It is about a solid relationship that you can come home to and feel that safety and warmth and love. And that is something we all crave. And no dollar is going to get you there. You have to work on it yourself. And Deb, you talk a little bit about, in our notes, about the social media aspect of this and how appearances versus reality is intruding into all of our lives. And let's face it, nobody puts a, a bad experience on Facebook, and everybody's right. looking to see if they can outdo or outgame the next person on social media. And so in some respects, costs have probably amped up because people are competing against one another for the oh. superior wedding, the better photo, the better picture. This actually harms relationships. I, I can't wait to see the 10-year and 20-year studies of Facebook on human psychology. But talk about how it might affect and disrupt a marriage. I'll give you one very good example why this came up. I was told the other, I have not seen this footage, but there was a couple that was getting engaged, and the gentleman was so nice to be able to maybe have his friend from the bushes tape and take pictures and make sure the video was ready so they could put that up on Facebook afterward. And as he got down on one knee and asked this girl to marry him, the first thing she said, is there a camera? Is there a video? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there is. Oh, that's great. Um, can we redo this? I mean, she took the moment away from him, and he was so patient with her. They did it 30 times. 30. Why? Because they wanted that perfect moment. But the crazy thing is they'll never get it because that moment was taken away by image. And I'm going to tell you what. I know a lot of people are going with that right now because they want to outdo their friends. You have nothing when you do that. Nothing. People do not understand what love is anymore. They don't understand relationship. They're getting into that social media and the front, what you're wearing, what you're doing, where you're going, takes, takes precedence over true relationship. And part of that is intimacy and vulnerability. If you cannot be truly honest with your future spouse or your spouse, you need to get help to run the marathon that marriage is. It's not a sprint. It's not a photo. It's not a video. It is about you and your partner with the raw naked truth 
on the fact that you have to grow your relationship and you are the only two that can do it. That's it. It's, if you don't know what that means, you have a problem. You need to get some help. It's so true, Deb. And by the way, I was at a, a Tom Petty concert about a month ago, and, and Jesse was at the same show. And it was so irritating. My wife and I are finally like, there's couples all around us, and they're holding, the th- they're holding up their camera. And I'm going, can you just watch a concert? Can you just experience something together? Do you have to be in it and post it to your friends how lucky you are and how unlucky they are? It's real. It's, it's crazy, Deb, that the, what people are doing with their own lives. They're turning their own lives into movies. And look right. at movie stars' lives. It doesn't end well. So why do you want this kind of fame? Deb, we love the, we love the coaching. Thanks for that note. And as always, thanks for joining us. And uh, we look forward to what you have next week for us. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our Marriage Coach. And she also happens to serve on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. This has been her life's work. And she's Our Marriage Coach here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And HBO, not too long ago, put out a, a story about a young Pakistani girl whose family tried to murder her. But they didn't call it murder. They called it honor killing. The idea that if a young woman brings shame to the family, she deserves to die. But as we'll see, this practice has little to do with honor or justice. The name of the documentary, A Girl in the River. And again... It's HBO. The girl from the film is named Saba. She wanted to marry a young man unapproved by her family. So she went off and married him anyway. Her defiance led to her father and uncle teaching her a lesson. After I got married, I did not even spend one day with my husband. We only spoke for an hour or two. I had no alone time with him. I did not spend the night at my in-laws. My relatives came and got me. They said, return home to uphold our family's honor. Then Kesar can come and take you back honorably. After that, they put their hand on the Quran and promised they wouldn't harm me. They had a Toyota and they put me in the car. Because they had sworn on the Quran, I had no fear in my heart. Soon afterwards, my uncle stopped the car and pulled me out. Then he started slapping and beating me. I was conscious during all the beatings and hittings they subjected me to. I remember trembling with fear and begging, but they didn't listen to me. A pistol was pointed at my brain near my temple, and my uncle was clutching my neck. But I was slightly able to tilt my face, which led to the shot missing its target. 
Then they put me in a bag and threw me in the river so I would go right to the bottom and no one would ever find out what happened. God did not want me to die. They tried to kill me, but I survived. Fate protected me from their bullets. In the future, fate might let me die by their hands. Only God knows these things. I slowly regained consciousness and got out of the river. Then I saw the light of a motorcycle in the distance, and I started following the light and slowly began walking towards it. I came to a gas station, and that's where I went for help. Saba's story is the basis of the Oscar-winning film directed by Charmin Obaid Shinoy. It's amazing that Saba survived such a traumatic experience and the chance to share it. Well, that's even more amazing. Here's the director speaking about the importance of this film. I think it was very important to tell the honor-killing story from the point of view of a survivor. Unfortunately, 99% of the cases, the women perish, not unable to tell their stories. Saba survived. Not only did she survive, she fought back. She got out of the river. She found a local fuel station. And the beauty of the story is that in this small town, the social services worked for Saba. The paramedics picked her up. She was taken to a local government hospital, which was run by a fantastic doctor who got his best surgeons to save her life. The local police in charge sent out investigators to find her father and her uncle and eventually did and jailed them. What would motivate a father to attack his own daughter? and then to feel entirely justified doing it? The director, Charmaine, spoke with the father, and here's what she found. The father and the uncle were defiant. They believed that what they did was right and that they would go back and do it again. Her father said to me, looking straight at me, that, yes, she's my daughter. I wanted to kill her. I provided her with food, shelter. How dare she defy me? How dare she go out without my permission? And uh, I... I'm ready to spend my entire life in jail because this is something that I've done for my honor, the honor of my family. She has shamed us. He said something like, I used to feed her three times a day. You know, you feed animals three times a day as well. He didn't look at her as another human being. At that point, I chose not to argue with him because I was extremely angry because these men get away with saying that this has something to do with religion when it absolutely has nothing to do with religion. You know, I mean, one of the most interesting things about the Muslim faith is that when a woman is getting married, a cleric has to ask her three times if she agrees to that marriage. If she hesitates even once, he is not to marry her off. So how can that religion condone honor killings? Indeed, this is not about religion. It was about her pride. Saba's response to what happened to her was to fight back. But this would prove to be an unfair fight. Well, Saba was very determined to fight the case. She wanted to make examples of her father and her uncle. There is a line in the film where she says that, you know, I want them to be shot in public so that no other man, no other father, no other uncle, no other brother does this to a woman in his family. And when I first met her, she had this fire in her. And she had a wonderful pro bono lawyer. They went to court. They began the proceedings. But the law did not support her. In Pakistan, in cases of honor killings, uh, the way it works, unfortunately, is that if a father kills his daughter, his wife can forgive him. If a brother kills a sister, the parents can forgive. In this case, because Saba survived, the community members, the neighborhood, they said that they would ostracize uh, the in-laws if she did not forgive. This film forced the conversation forward in Pakistan because it showed the government 
and public a real-life victim that had survived. There was now a face to this ongoing tragedy. They could no longer turn a blind eye. The film uh, has created quite a stir in Pakistan. The prime minister came out and said that he wanted to work on the issue of honor killings. And he has since then met with me. He has uh, spoken to members of his political party. They are going to be working to plug the loopholes in the law, making sure that there is no forgiveness in cases of honor killings. You know, I think that the prime minister was inspired to come out and speak about this issue, saying that there is no place for honor killings in Islam and that we must make that clear to everybody. If this law passes, honor killings will be a crime against the state, not against an individual, which means that the state has to prosecute and you cannot forgive. A lot of things can go wrong, but if in a town three or four people go to jail for it, the fifth person will think twice before shooting somebody in his family. In the beginning of her trial, Saba was not alone. Her pro bono lawyer worked very hard to help her seek justice. Honor killing under the Pakistani law should be treated as a murder, and the case should be prosecuted in the court of law as any murder case. But what happens is that in most cases, the near relatives who are allowed under law can forgive the accused. So for example, if father kills his daughter, the rest of the family members forgive him. The killers in honor killing cases are allowed to be acquitted. And that is also one reason why honor killings are rising because people get to know that if they kill their daughters, their sisters, they may still go scot-free. This is not just Sabah's cause, it's the society's cause. It's a question of public policy whether in such cases compromise or forgiveness should be allowed to happen or not. But seeking justice is a long-drawn process and women are at a great social and institutional disadvantage. Women in Pakistani society live as second-rate citizens, or perhaps even worse. Saba's lawyers went to great lengths to help her, even meeting with the elders of the community to try and reason with them. But social pressure plays a very powerful role there. And while Saba did want to seek justice, sometimes the corruption, well, it's just rooted too deeply. I can understand why she's inclined to reach a compromise. Our justice system is not strong enough to provide her security. Let's assume the accused are convicted and sentenced to five years of imprisonment. And they come out. And then they again try to kill her. Who is going to protect her? And one of the accused is her own father. And he's the only breadwinner of the family. So it makes worldly sense to forgive him. When the law allows for this kind of settlement, the courts in such instances have become mere uh, post offices. They just record the statement of the victim. This is something which strengthens male superiority. Then came the day where Saba had to choose whether or not to forgive her uncle and father. At first, I was sitting outside and was feeling sick. Then the judge greeted me and said, Come forward. Then he said, Child, do you wish to forgive them? Do we have your permission? I said yes. 
The Pakistani justice system may be broken, but Saba's will certainly isn't. If the elders hadn't pressured me, I would have never forgiven them. I said to myself, the longer they stay in prison, the better for everyone. I forgave them for society's sake. I listened to my family and forgave them. But in my heart, they are never forgiven. Let's end with some of Saba's final thoughts. Kesur and I will have a baby soon. I hope it is a girl so she can be brave. I hope she can do good things and be educated. I hope she can work if she wants to. She should do whatever her heart desires. God is the one who decides. But I would like to have a girl. On October 6, 2016, Pakistan passed a new law. From then on, perpetrators of so-called honor killings would be prosecuted by the state and they could no longer walk free if simply pardoned by the victim's family. Saba's bravery on display. This remarkable film, this remarkable story by HBO, A Girl in the River.